Well, good evening, saints. Uh, tonight, Matthew. Open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. So, last week we left off in verse 12, and uh, we'll be continuing here in verse 13. So, let's simply bar our hearts. Father, we're so blessed by just you, your grace, your goodness. You've been taking us through this incredible gospel. As we are beginning to witness and see um, truly the coming of the King and all of his entails. And so, Father, through this, we're asking that by your grace, by your spirit, once again, that you would open up our ears, you would open up our hearts, you'd open up our lives to the instruction of your word. That we would not just come and leave this place with uh, knowledge. But we would leave this place with a deeper understanding, a deeper love, a deeper reverence for you and for your work, Jesus. Humble us. Humble us. Let us not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But realize that um, it is truly your grace that, that calls. And it's your grace that enables. It's your grace that, um, Lord, we magnify you in it. And so, Father, truly just give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Um, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, we just, um, as we've been looking at this first section, we've talked about it already, how we're, we're looking at this area where it's the coming of the king. So we saw the genealogy initially, and we noted how... You know, anyone who would, you know, try to stand on the genealogy to exalt themselves. I love what Matthew did. He just said, listen, here's the Lord. And, and he came through a genealogy that doesn't separate him from us, but in a sense almost endears him to us in even a greater way. Um, that you had um, women, you had incest, you had adultery, all these things were part of it. And, and yet here comes the Lord through this incredible, Incredible um, lineage, and I, I find it interesting that so often, you know, where we're going to see that a lot of the spiritual leaders in the book of Matthew almost pride themselves on "I'm superior in this," "I'm superior in this," "I'm superior in this," and what Matthew is going to do is systematically just knock down any mode of superiority, and he does it over and over. I mean, he started out with uh, um, just the genealogy. Then he talks about, here's Mary, not even married, and you know she's pregnant, she's going to have this child, of course, with the Holy Spirit. And then we, we see here, you know, the religious leaders, as the Gentiles come seeking the king of the Jews, you know, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, well, let's figure out where he is. And it's, yeah, he's there in Bethlehem. And they don't go. Mm -hmm. They don't go. And it's just, it's just a humbling thing to really point out the, the leadership that's here. Um, all these people who feign superiority. And, and as we come, we're going to be noting, um, as we get into today, even John the Baptist. And how his look, his ministry is not like anything that's going on. And um, so for those who, you know, really look to how do you do a work for the Lord. Um, <laughs> say, what pattern should I follow? Just, just, I don't know, follow the Spirit. And just as John the Baptist did. So... But as we've been going through this, we saw initially the genealogy. We saw then the um, Gentiles coming and paying homage to this king. 
as they came and they gave him the, the gifts of the gold and the frankincense and myrrh. And now what we're doing is we're, we're moving to this part and we're going to see the beginning of the hostility. Now this is also the coming of the king. So we saw the, the heritage of the genealogy. We saw the homages, the, the, um, the, the wise men come. We're seeing the hostility with Herod. We're also then going to see um, today the humility as he's called this Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. Um, very humbling thing to, to be from Nazareth. And then, you know, we're, I think today we're going to go into chapter 3 where we're going to be, see the herald of the, this king um, into his ministry. So, verse 13 here of Matthew chapter 2. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. I want to pause here for just a second because I want you to notice the format that goes over and over and over. In verse 11 here of chapter 2, it says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary. Note that they didn't see Mary and her baby. That there is an, a necessary thing in realizing the position that's going on. It's not, they saw Mary. They saw the young child. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I saw Mary. And here, as they, they are, are going into where the Lord warns Joseph, he says, I want you to take the young child and his mother. Um, in verse 20, he's going to say, arise and take the young child and his mother. And then verse 21, of course, he arose, he took the young child and his mother. So, you know, keep in mind that, that Mary's a part of this, but in, in this understanding, what we're seeing is this, that Joseph is the one who takes the lead as the head of this family. He's not simply just this, this parenthesis that's off to the side. Joseph was the one, back in chapter 1, verse 19, says, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, wanting and not wanting to make a public spectacle, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought about these things, an angel Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so we see here that verse 24 of chapter 1, Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel commanded him and took to him as wife. And then in verse 25, Make a note of this. It's Joseph who calls his name Jesus. And that's what it says. They didn't, he did not know her until she had brought first her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph is the one who's taking a leadership role here in the home. God gives him that leadership place in the home. And so he's calling on Joseph. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Here I want you to um, call his name Jesus. I want you now to take them to Egypt. And so here, as soon as the wise men depart, and I want you to notice this rapid succession of what's going on. In verse 13, as soon as these wise men leave, as soon as they depart, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So he's not worried about Mary. He's just worried about this child. And so, you know, where 
Revelation teaches that this dragon that is there, he literally wants to go and devour the male child even before it's born. And we see that here Satan wants to use um, Herod as this vessel to destroy this young child. But an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and he says, I want you to flee to Egypt. And as he goes there, he says, and, and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Verse 14, when he arose, the young child, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. So he has this dream. He wakes up and he says, we're out of here. Notice he doesn't say, we're going to leave tomorrow morning. We're going to, he instantly says, this, this child's life is a danger. He, he wakes up, he takes the child, he takes Mary, and they depart for Egypt. There's this instant obedience when you see here Joseph. Now Joseph, he takes Mary as his wife. He calls the name you know, of the child Jesus. He does everything that's commanded. And of course here, the instant obedience that he has as soon as he realizes that this child, his life would be in danger. Well, in verse 15, and, and it says, so he departed for Egypt in the end of verse 14 and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I call my son. Now, that's a, a prophecy from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And, and I want you to realize that there are, what Hosea is doing, he's talking about Israel as a whole. And he says, and I called Israel, my son, out of Egypt. And so what Israel is in Hosea is that near sense of prophecy. But Hosea, you know, whether he realized or not, there's this future sense of the prophecy as well. That we see that there's a physical fulfillment as Israel leaves. There's also going to be a physical fulfillment as Jesus leaves. But there's that near sense and that future sense of the prophecy that here, as he quotes from Hosea, out of Egypt, I call my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two-year-olds and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. At this point, Herod now, when the Magi go a different direction, they don't come back to him. And he's waiting, days are going by, nothing's happening. And so he eventually realized the wise men did not come back to him as he, would, as he had requested. Now remember in verse 8 when he said this, he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go search carefully for the young child and when you have found him, Bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. That was the verdict. So, of course, you know, at this point, verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. So they are warned that they take another route back. Um, and then now Herod realizes they haven't come to him. They haven't told him where this child is. And so as he realizes now that he's deceived, we see this word that he's exceedingly angry. If you look into actually secular history, you realize that this is not an uncommon thing for Herod. Herod had a way of just 
always, he was a short in stature guy, but he had this huge complex of always thinking, I'm going to lose something, I'm going to lose something, I have to keep my kingdom. He would slaughter his sons, he would slaughter his wives. Um, one of the Caesars actually said that it, it's be safer to be Herod's sow than his son. And of course, it's just a trick on, on the, um, the, the Greek words. But he's literally saying that being his son, being his family is not the easiest thing. He always had this panic that you're trying to usurp and take my throne. Well, here, just the fact that he was exceedingly angry is not a new thing for Herod. Um, and then he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two-year-olds and under according to the time which he determined from the wise men. Verse 17, this was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, a lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. A quote from Jeremiah 31.15. Now through this, as Herod comes, we see here that he wants to put to death all the male children who are in Bethlehem. And what's unique is this. If you take a look and, and you have a poll and you ask people all over the world, you know, where Heartland is, where Oconomowoc is, where Milwaukee is, there's going to be some that know, some that don't. You ask them where Bethlehem is, they know where Bethlehem is. Now, why is Bethlehem known throughout the world? I mean, there's songs that we sing in the old little town of Bethlehem. Why is Bethlehem, this little tiny town, why is it so important? The reason being, it's not because David was born there. Now, some of you said, I didn't even know David was born there. Yes, David was born in Bethlehem. The reason it's important why Jesus was there. It's, it's literally insignificant. It's nothing but because Jesus was there. Bethlehem becomes this incredible thing. And understand that as Christians, we may be nothing. We may be insignificant. But when Jesus is here... When Jesus is in you, there's a powerhouse. They're, they're the, I, I love what the demons had said you know, when they were talking about the sons of Siva. Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? you know, there, there's something about when Jesus takes residence in a place that all of a sudden it's known. And of course, we're known in the spiritual realm. Bethlehem is known in the physical realm. But at this point, I want you to realize that Bethlehem, at the time of Herod here had a population of approximately 300 people, including the villages. It wasn't huge. It was a small town. So when you, when you look at where the death of those who are two and under, that you're looking at on a high end, maybe 20 children that were, were murdered, but 20 children that are murdered is huge. Um, on the low end, it could be as low as maybe 10 children. That as he looks, because you only have 300 people in all the surrounding, how many of those 300 actually have children to another? And so within this, I think it's interesting that here you don't find this recorded in secular history. You don't even find that Josephus, who's pretty accurate in recording a lot of what the, the scriptures and the authors of the scriptures declare, he doesn't even record this. So in, in, the, in the secular world, it's, it's almost an insignificant blip. Nothing is recorded this. But what I love about God is this, that it is recorded. He sees the death of these children, and he sees it as a fulfillment of prophecy, but he sees it as something that is profound. 
and and that is is now written down and, and it is literally eternal and I do believe that you know when when we look to this and, and we look and we see oh my goodness there was the death of children innocence and yet our country is you know murdering children by the hundreds of thousands and into the millions and no one takes notice I want you to notice God does so make no mistake about that that although our country may be going the way the rest of the world is God takes notice over what's going on so here Herod goes and he now sends forth to put to death verse 16 all the male children who were be in Bethlehem in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which was determined from the wise men. So in other words, from the time they saw the star, the time they begin to travel, they do the calculations and realize that if I'm, you know, going to two years old, I'm, I'm gonna cover all that distance. So that's where, when they say this a young child, they say he's probably between a year and 18 months, maybe a little bit older, maybe into 20 months. Um, so when he goes from two years old and under, and so in verse 17, he talks about now it's a fulfillment. I want to share with you just one passage. Jot it down. Isaiah 53, verse 3, makes this. After he says he's despised and rejected by many, he says he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. There, there's, there's no pleasure in, with the Lord that, that when his son is born, as Satan begins to um, want to thwart him and to destroy him, that there are innocents who are, um, their lives are taken. And the, the point that we need to understand is this. This is how desperate the enemy is to get Jesus off the scene. His whole goal is, is I want to stop him from coming. And where we saw there in the genealogy when it came to Kaniah, I want to stop him from coming. So I want to curse the bloodline. So we're going, to, we're going to prevent him from coming through there. And of course, that, that bloodline was cursed. But we saw there in Luke's Gospel that there's a clean bloodline through David's son, Nathan. That comes through Mary. Mary has the purity of the blood. Joseph has the royalty of the blood. So as he adopts the Lord, he can still be considered king. And through this, though, as these children are slaughtered, I want you to realize just how dangerous it was for Jesus Christ even as a child. Even as a child, the enemy's coming. Now, now here, of course, those wise men came to Herod, who was the king, and says, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Not he who's the prince now. He was born king. He, he, he was the baby. He's greater than you. And so at this point, he goes, and as he's threatened, we see here that he seeks to destroy it. But it was fulfilled, was spoken by Jeremiah. Now, when Jeremiah made his prophecy in Jeremiah 31.15, I want you to, to note this. It doesn't say, and where, where Matthew makes this clear um, quotation from Jeremiah, he said, a voice was heard in Ramah. Not a voice is heard. In other words, that this, yes, there is this, this past suffering that went on, but there's just in, in the, the term of the was heard, it almost points out there's a future hope. And so what was beautiful about this quote is, yes, it talks about the grieving. It talks about the sadness. It talks about these innocent children that have died. But in that term that he says, the voice was heard, 
that yes, there's this past grieving as these children have died, but there's a future hope. Why? Because the Messiah is still alive and, and his work will continue. So it says, a voice was heard, verse 18 in Rama, a lamentation, a weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. At this point, it only refers to Rachel. Um, it doesn't refer to Leah. It doesn't refer to Zilpah. It doesn't refer to any of the other concubines or wives that he has. Simply Rachel. Now, if you remember that passage that we looked at in Genesis chapter 48, verse 7, where they were on the way to Bethlehem, and after um, Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, then she dies. And she's buried on the side of the road on the way to Bethlehem. So if you're familiar with how the, the land was divided in the book of Joshua, that Benjamin actually received Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in this, this lower point, and Benjamin actually receives Jerusalem. Judah, um, as we, we look, probably has um, Bethlehem. But as he refers to this, it's that lower area. It's where Rachel, the, the wife that Jacob loved, was buried. Of course, Leah is there with Jacob. Um, she's there with Isaac and Rebekah. She's there with Abraham and Sarah. So they're using Rachel as just this generic term for her children. And so whether it's referring to the place because it's close by where Benjamin's territory is, or whether you're, you're looking to it's a place by where she's buried, or just saying that, that she was the wife that Jacob you know, loved, and so she's used as this overall that they point out to her weeping for her children. So through this, um, as we, we know with Hosea that he talks about that weeping because it was the southern tribes, Joseph and Benjamin, that were taken into captivity. And that's what here, um, you know, Jeremiah points out. And so we see how that flow comes. So why he just does Rachel, Hosea does, you know, we can make speculation to it. We don't know for sure. But I, I find it interesting that she was the one who was buried there. And, and her last son, Benjamin, was there in that area. And so Hosea or Jeremiah simply quotes Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because there's no more. So as we look to this, just things that you should make a note at the probably the most, this is on the very high end, maybe 20 young children died um, through this. You won't find in secular history, only in scripture. And, and of course, it was there in Bethlehem. It was noted because Jesus was there. And it was the fulfillment, once again, of the prophecy. And so here, where Jeremiah spoke of the near fulfillment, there in that physical sense of the children dying, now he didn't realize he would be speaking prophetically in the future fulfillment of children dying as well. But these here when Jeremiah prophesied was a lot older kids and older adults, and it was weeping for the nation Israel, which is in a sense called you know, Rachel's children. But here it's actually babies that are there in Bethlehem. Now verse 19, when Herod was dead. Um, I want to pause there because every religious or yeah, every leader, whether religious, political, should read this. 
when Herod was dead, you, you have a time that you can rule, you have a time that you can reign, but there's a time that you are going to die, and then when you die, judgment comes. And, and this is what happens. Herod thinks he has control. He was the king. He could slaughter children. But note this. This is what happens to every leader when Herod was dead. Um, behold, now the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. And he arose and he took the young child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. At this point, Joseph has this understanding. Now Herod is dead. This angel gives him a dream saying, I want you to take my child back because the, the prophecy in verse 15 was what out of Egypt I call my son. He's going to come back. He's there for Israel. At this point, he takes the young child. He takes their mother. He comes to the land of Israel. But at this point, he, he now hears that Herod's son Archelaus is reigning over Judah instead of his father. Um, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. He's not a good guy either. And so now Joseph is afraid to go back to Judah. He's afraid to go back to Bethlehem. So at this point, notice at the end of verse 22, and being warned by God in a dream. So God says, don't go to Bethlehem. I want you to go to the northern part of Israel. I want you to go to the region of Galilee. And so he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, you'll realize that, that Mary was from Nazareth. Um, a lot of commentators have Joseph also being from Nazareth. So they go back into that area. But it's going up into the region of Galilee. And if you're familiar how Israel is, you have the... The Mediterranean Sea that's there on the west, you have what we would call the Jordan River that sort of puts the boundary there on the east. Towards the south end, there's the Dead Sea, but then towards the north, about 70 miles, you have the Sea of Galilee. And within that, there's that fertile region around there that's called Galilee, and that's where he goes. Now, as, as you head further towards the west, you're going to come to this small town called Nazareth. Nazareth is one of those towns that is, um, has a bad reputation. In other words, if, if I were to you know, talk about Oconomowoc, you go, oh, Oconomowoc, I like Oconomowoc, I like the city, I like the place. But if I were to say Milwaukee, go, oh yeah, Milwaukee, it has this reputation. Um, and so there, there's certain cities that have this reputation. Um, I want to share with you just a, a passage in, in John chapter 1, verse 45 and verse 46, where um, John is, or where, where Philip finds Nathaniel, and he says in verse 45 of John chapter 1, he said, We found him of whom Moses said in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then, you know, of course, I love, you know, Philip. He says, well, just come and see. Well, you, you, you be the judge. Don't prejudge anything. But this is a reputation that Nazareth has. And it's sort of this dirty little backwoods town that has a reputation of um, people being sly, people being crafty, and doesn't have the best of reputations. However, in verse 23... And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. I want to pause here for just a second. And I want to have you take a look at just a couple of verses. Um, and, and as we go through this, just so you can kind of see what we're looking at. In verse 22, it says this. So all this was done. Oh, 20, chapter 1, verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through, and I want you to note that the prophet singular saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child. So of course he's quoting from Isaiah. We also see in verse five of chapter two, um, then they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem. So again, it's in the singular as he's quoting now from Micah. In here, um, the, the next thing is in verse 15. He said he's, he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet. I know I'm straining this out. Singular, saying, out of Egypt I call my son from Hosea. Um, verse 17, that it was fulfilled, what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying the voice was heard in Ramah. So, at this point, it's Jeremiah, the prophet, singular. When it comes to verse 23, I want you to look at what he says specifically. Verse 23 says, And he came and he dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, plural. Because if you go into your um, Strong's and Corinth, if you try to find out where it says, he shall be called a Nazarene, you're not going to find it. You're just not going to find it. So what happens is this, that what Matthew is doing, he's not quoting a singular prophet like he has been. What he's doing is this, he's actually bringing a type of a mixture of prophets, plural, trying to bring this point across. So before he was quoting simple prophecy, in verse 23, what he's doing, he's declaring a type. So you have to understand there's a difference in what Matthew is doing and all the other times that he quoted the prophet. He simply say, here's the prophet, this is fulfilled. Now he's saying in verse 23 that here there are prophets that are speaking and are pointing out Jesus as this type. He shall be called a Nazarene. Because he's quoting from prophets, plural, he's picking and choosing from multiple ones. If you go to commentaries, you're going to realize that they're all over the map on this. They have no idea what it is, where he's quoting, why he's quoting. Um, some say that he's quoting from um, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where it says there shall be a branch. Um, if you're familiar with what the, the, the Nazarite or Nazareth is, um, the, the root word is Nazir, and Nazir simply means it's a shoot, it's a little branch. And so they say, well, that's Isaiah chapter 11, he's this little branch. It could very well be. There are some who say that, yeah, it's from Nazareth, 
And so you have that same root that comes out of it for the Nazarite. If you're familiar with that passage in, in Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it goes all the way into like verse 21. They talk about this Nazarite vow that you have and where in a sense there's an aspect of, of John the Baptist that is a Nazarite vow. But some are saying that Jesus here has that same purity of the Nazarite vow and that Matthew is trying to pinpoint for that. And that's a possibility as well. There's another aspect of where as a, a, a Nazarite um, that he shall be called a Nazarene. When, when you call someone a Nazarene, it's sort of like calling someone a podunk. It's sort of like calling someone, you know, you're from that vile area. Um, that's the fulfillment where, remember, as, as uh, uh, Philip and Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So, in a sense, trying to quote the, 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 the character of the area in which he came. The beautiful thing about this is so many people look to a prestige to say, I'm from here, right, from there, you know, and it's all well and fine. However, Jesus said, um, I'm going to come and literally come from what you would call the pits. I'm going to come from this dirty little tiny town, Nazareth. And he said, and then from this, God says, I'm going to call my son. I'm going to call him out of Egypt. I'm going to call him out of Nazareth. And so what's interesting is that there are, are certain times where, um, oh, it's hilarious. I'm going to just digress for just a moment. We were at... We just moved here to the area, and God had opened up where this lady who was coming to the church said, hey, I drive by this place all the time. There's this place for rent. And so I called up this 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 um, guy who lived up in Mequon. He had this old farmhouse that was like 150 years old, maybe older, probably older. And and, and so it was, it was um, when I said, hey, you know, I'm here. We have, you know, a bunch of kids. You know, we'd like to rent your place. And so I said, yeah, that's fine. And there were other people that were looking, but... Through God's grace, he gave us favor, and the guy allowed us to, to rent this old farmhouse in Mequon. And so I was at this, this picnic, and this guy said, oh, so where do you live? And I have no idea what Mequon is. To me, it's Mequon, Milwaukee. It could be anything. I have no idea that Mequon is, is a higher elevated in community. And I said, well, I'm, I'm in Mequon. He goes, oh, la-ti-da. And it's like, what does that mean? And eventually I came to find out what Mequon was. Like, oh, la-ti-da. So, so we realized that we, in this little tiny corner, we lived in the slums of Mequon. There was one little corner property. It was this farmhouse that the, 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 the room was literally falling off the house where the mudroom was. And, and so... Um, we had a guy that came over for a Bible study. He fell through the floor of the bathroom. So it, was, it wasn't, you know, but it was Mequon, you know. So um, people look for places as far as status and, you know, and I was oblivious to it. And I love what God, he's oblivious to it too. Don't worry about, oh, you know, like you can't associate because, you know, they're in higher elevation. They live in D.C. or they live in New York. <laughs> These are Nazareth. He could talk to anybody. Anybody could approach him. Anyone would feel they're above him or at least equal to him if they lived in Nazareth too. So we see here, and I just want you to recognize that, that term, that word, because in Isaiah chapter 53, and we already quoted it once, but I want to quote the first part of the verse where it says this, he was despised and rejected by men. 
So when commentators are trying to figure out where Matthew is trying to find these types, where in verse 23 he said, which was spoken by the prophets, not a, a single prophetic word, but a type now of multiple prophets. They're all over the map. And to be honest with I couldn't tell you which is which. Um, I'm going to just kind of tell you what's out there. Um, to me, and I know it's a type, and that's what I want you to stress, not that you want to argue, well, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a number six guy, or I'm an Isaiah 11 guy, or I'm an Isaiah 53 guy. Um, realize that he talks prophets, not prophet, which is the key to understanding this verse. If you understand he's referring to multiple ones trying to draw a type um, by saying that he's from Nazareth, um, he shall be called a Nazarene um, in, in some form or another. He's using something in the Old Testament to where there may be something else that maybe God will show you. Um, if he does show you in the next week, give it to me. And the next time we go through Matthew, I'll teach it. So, um, but if he doesn't, we'll just keep doing the same thing where I'm like, I know it's a type. That's as much as I can give you here. So in chapter 3, it declares this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord to make his path straight. So again, verse 3, he's quoting from a singular prophet. He's quoting from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 40. And he makes a statement of the voice one crying in the wilderness. So who is this voice? Well, at this point, what Matthew's saying is John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophetic word. And so where Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 40, is his future sense. John the Baptist is the one to whom is the one who comes. Now, I want to just pause here for just a second, and I want to share the second part first, and I want to share the first part second. In verse 2, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he makes this statement. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very first word that comes prophetically in the New Testament. Now keep in mind that Malachi was the last book written in the Old Testament. And as Malachi was written, the prophets ended. 400 years have passed. No prophet has spoken. Now an angel spoke to Joseph. An angel spoke to Mary. An angel is going to speak to the, you know, or God is going to direct the wise men. And so we see that, that God will speak to certain individuals. However, no prophet has spoken since Malachi. And for 400 years, finally a prophet speaks. And I wanted you to make a note of verse 2. The very first word that a prophet speaks after 400 years of silence is repent. Repent. And, and I'll tell you what, that's a word that in church today is not a good word. You don't want to use it in your, in your sermon or in your message if you can avoid it. Because people don't like that term. Now when Jesus comes on the scene, there in Matthew chapter 4, I want to just share a couple of things with you. Um, here's the, the Lord, and, and it makes where in chapter 4 verse 11, right after his temptation, the devil left him. And then 
verse 12, Jesus, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed, went to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. And notice what happens in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to teach and say, repent. Now, it's interesting that John the Baptist, the very first word out of the prophet is, repent. Jesus comes on the scene, and the first word that he gives is, repent. In the book of Acts, when Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives this amazing message, that all of a sudden, the, the people there that are moved by the message, after the very first Christian sermon, if you want to call it that, he comes and he gives this incredible word, and he talks about, as he's spirit-filled, he talks about who this Christ is, and notice what happens. And I want to take you to Acts chapter 2. And I want to read from verse um, 36 through 38. The key is going to be verse 38, but I want you to see the context here. So Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's how he ends his sermon. Now when they, verse 37, heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So these people are now moved by the message. They're moved by, he sent the Christ, who crucified him, but through his death you'll have life. And Peter gives this amazing message. And so these people, their, their hearts are cut. They're moved by the message. And they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now look at verse 38. So Peter said to them, oh yeah, repent. <laughs> repent. There's a difference between confession and repentance. And that sometimes gets mixed up in today's Christianity. Confession is this. You say something with your mouth. I'm sorry that I did this. Lord, forgive me for this. I speak it with my mouth. I, I word it. With my lips. And so a confession is something that's either internally spoken or externally spoken. Repentance is this. Repentance means to, to turn and to agree with. It means that I'm going to turn from what I'm doing. I'm going to turn from what I believe. And as I turn 180, I'm going to look to what God declares and I'm going to agree with God. That's what repentance is. So, so often as Christians, we have this point of, well, I've confessed my sin, but have you repented? Have you turned from it? And I think that's the difference of just either speaking the word or becoming a doer of the word. It's one of the things to recognize, yeah, I, I've, I had this issue, but it's another thing to say, you know, I'm going to actually act on this information. Because here, the very first thing that John says is, physically turn and change your behaviors, turn and change direction. Jesus comes on the scene, turn and change direction. Peter gives this message and he says, men and brothers, what should we do? He says, turn direction, change. Do something different than what you've been doing. In other words, you've been doing your own thing, now do what God commands. That's what it means. It means to turn and to agree with. In other words, you're, you're recognizing what I've been doing is not the clear teaching that God has called me to do. But as I turn, I'm going to begin to do the clear teaching that God has called me to do. So that's the message, and that's the second thing. But now I want to focus on who is the one who's giving this message. Um, there is in the, the, the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, 
the actual prophet, the, the, the prophecy that when he comes. Now he says this in Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi says there's going to be a messenger, and this messenger is going to prepare a way before the Lord, before the Messiah. John the Baptist is this voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's that prophetic word from Isaiah. He's also the prophetic word from Malachi 3.1. Now, who is this John the Baptist? We already saw his, his prophecy. Who is he as a person? I want to read for you from Luke chapter 1 in verse 15. It simply declares this. As the, the Lord speaks to Zacharias... He says this in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So this is who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is one who even from the mother's womb is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Now God has called him to be this incredible person that is going to be, you know, just drawing people back to the Lord. There's... Another aspect of who he is, I want to read you from John chapter 10, verse 41. It declares this, Then many came to him and said, that they're coming to Jesus, and they said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John had spoken about this man were true. So here's the unique thing about John, is John doesn't do any signs, but everything that he spoke about this man, everything that he said about Jesus Christ was true. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Let me read that to you. It says this, Jesus speaking as surely I say to you that among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So of all the prophets, of anyone born of women, there were none greater than John the Baptist. However, John the Baptist did no signs. He didn't do any wonders. He didn't part, you know, say, okay, let's come down to Jordan. He didn't part to Jordan, get everybody to lay down, bring the water back, open it back. He didn't do any signs, didn't do any wonders. But what he did do is this. Everything that he said about Jesus Christ was true. He pointed people to Jesus. He pointed people to Jesus over and over again. I want to take you to just a couple of passages in the Gospel of John. I want to read from you verse 29, and then I'm going to jump to verse 35. But it says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 35, again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples 
and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. John had this mentality that I must decrease, he must increase. And as he has that mentality, what I love about John the person is from the womb he's filled with the Spirit. He points people over and over, it's not me, it's Jesus. It's not me, it's Jesus. It's not, in fact, I must decrease. In fact, he needed to decrease so much he would die. And when he was in prison, then all of a sudden Jesus begins his ministry. But he was there as a messenger. He was there anointed by the Lord. And I love the fact that out of all the prophets that, that came, all the prophets that had been before him, you're talking about Moses who parts the Red Sea, Elijah, and you know, who, you know, stops it from raining, Elisha, you know, um, and uh, you know, Elijah calling fire down from heaven, all these things that you see with these prophets, and yet John was greater than all of them. And so what makes him great? He just pointed people to Jesus. You have to understand that, that what God sets his power is this when when people go from death into life. And he just pointed people. He pointed people. And part of that ministry that he was going to have, and I love the heart of it, what it said there in Luke 1.16 again, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Why? He just points out he's the lamb. He's the one. Follow him. He's the guy. And he wasn't worried whether his disciples would leave him. It's like, you're supposed to leave me. You're supposed to follow him. This was the heart of John the Baptist. Now, when you look at John and when you see where he's at, I want you to understand just an aspect of who John is. And I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about um, his preaching ministry. What John the Baptist does is this. He doesn't care who's before him. He just doesn't. He's got one thing in mind. I'm here to declare to you the truth. You're either going to receive it or you're not going to receive it. Take a look here in chapter 3, verse 7. And of Matthew. And I'm going to read here from verses 7 through 10. But it says this, And when he saw many of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the book How to Have Friends and Influence People, but this is not in that book. You, you can't say, Brood of vipers, instantly. He doesn't say, oh, hi, guys, nice to see you. He recognizes them for who they are. He says, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He's telling this religious, these religious leaders, you guys got to repent. And you have to bear fruits that are worthy of that repentance. They have this thing where they're positioning themselves as superior. John is letting them know you're not superior. Now, what's funny is this, that if you take a look at those religious leaders, we're going to see here in just a moment in verse 4, where John himself was clothed in camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So, so here's this guy, and he's not dressed with GQ. He just isn't. He's got this, this cloak on of, of camel's hair. And if you've ever ridden on a camel, if you've ever done that, you're going to find out that a camel is not like sitting on a horse. It's not like petting a cat or petting a dog. Camels are just scratchy little things. And that's why everyone puts blankets and saddles on them. Well, John says, I'm going to have a coat of this camel's hair. 
And, you know, so he's not, you know, the, the who's who of, of how to do ministry. He's not dressed like these other guys. I mean, compare John in the coat of camel's hair to the high priest in his garments and the priestly garments, all these things. And John wasn't there to say, wow, I need to really attract you by, by what I wear. Um, and he wasn't trying to say, hey, I need to schmooze you by what I see, by what I say. He says, listen, you guys who seem to have it all together, what he says here in, in Matthew 3, verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, how is that for insignificant? You, you guys are thinking that your prestige comes from Abraham, from your genealogy. We already looked at how you know Christ's genealogy showed that it isn't about genealogy which makes you great. It's about what? It's about the Spirit of God. It's about God's calling. It's about God's anointing. That's what makes a man great. And so here, John has the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, in the womb. He recognizes the Lord in the womb because when Mary comes to visit... Um, her uh, her aunt, all of a sudden we see here that uh, John leaps for joy. And so um, in the womb, he's already recognizing where it is. So through this, we begin to see here um, this incredible word of just the preaching of John. Now I want to just jump a little bit more here to Matthew chapter 14. And I want to read verse 3 and 4. I want you to still to see the preaching that he does. And now he's actually before um, you know, a, a king. So in verse 3 it says this, For Herod had laid hold of John, in Matthew 14, verse 3, and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. He didn't care that he was a king. He didn't care who he was. It's like there's, a, there's truth and there's lie. And you need to get to the point of being the truth. And so I love the heart of where here you see this incredible preaching that he has. And so as you look to him, as you look to this preaching, as you look to what he declares, you begin to see here John and his heart. Um, I want to share with you just the aspect of John chapter 3, verse 30. That you hear just a little bit of who he is and, and realize that the very passion of John. I know I quoted this earlier, but I want to give you the reference and I want to read it to you. But in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says this. He must increase, but I must decrease. There's one thing that moved John. And this was this elevating Jesus Christ in his own life, elevating Jesus Christ in other people's lives, elevating Jesus Christ in other people's eyes, elevating Jesus Christ in other people's ears. What he wanted to do is this. He wanted to elevate Jesus Christ. And when you see this, other prophets pointed to Jesus Christ, but they said he was greater than all of them. Why? Because John sought to elevate Christ, not just point to him, but to elevate him. And you see, this is the key to what makes John this incredible um, prophet that, that's here. And so as he goes through, um, the last thing that I want to share with you is just the, the passing of John. And that, of course, is, is once again found in Matthew chapter 14. 
And, and I just want to start reading from verse 3 because for Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And he went, and although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths. And because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And the head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So you see this incredible man who comes on the scene, prophesied that he would be on the scene. Isaiah says he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Malachi said he's the messenger that goes before. And what you see here of John's ministry is he doesn't seek to prolong it. His ministry is point to Jesus, point to Jesus, point to Jesus, get out of the way. And it's important, and I think this is where, um, I think something that God has given to me, that my whole directive is to get you guys to read your scriptures, read your scriptures, so that you can see Him on your own. That's my heart. It's always been my heart, so that you guys see the Lord, that you're not looking to say, oh, Lowell said this, well, no, it's the Spirit, it's His Word that says these things. I try to make this really clear, that it isn't me who's saying this, this is the Word of God, which is why I read so much of it. You're realizing Lowell doesn't make this up. He just reads what God has already directed. So you see the Lord. You fall in love with the Lord. You worship the Lord. I want to just see him elevated. But this is what John the Baptist does and who John the Baptist is. So when you see in verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. It's important to realize who he is. And, and as, you, as we saw here, the, the prophecy that led to him, the person, the preaching, his passion, and lastly, his passion. You understand this is who John the Baptist is. And he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The crazy thing about John the Baptist is he didn't go where the people were. He didn't say, well, let's, let's find the place that has the deepest population. Let's bury ourselves in there. And let's begin to do it. He goes out in the wilderness. And you're thinking, why would you go where nobody is? And, and the honest thing is this. He goes to where nobody is because when people come to him, they come to him for a very specific reason. There's always that skeptical thing that says, well, I've come here and this is where all the people are. Yeah, they're, they're here. But when they come to John, there's a very specific reason that they're there. And so he's there preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And the message that he gives is this, repent, just repent. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's a message that's missing in the church. We've covered that. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At this point, you have to understand he's not saying the kingdom of Israel. He's saying the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not even saying the kingdom of God. Matthew is speaking to the Jews, saying that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And the Jews sometimes have an issue with saying, it's God, it's God, it's God. They don't like to use his name. Um, sometimes they'll say, I swear by the temple, 
not the God of the temple. Well, who's greater, the temple or the God of the temple? I'm not swearing by God, I'm swearing by the temple. They, they, they have a tendency of not wanting to use God in his name. So what Matthew does is this, unlike the other um, gospel writers who talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, Matthew, because he's specifically writing to these Jews to not think so highly of themselves, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. The same referencing, the same directing that he's trying to do, but he's honoring the Jews by not using the term God because they'll just get upset because of it. So he calls it here basically the kingdom of heaven. So he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So the whole thing is that by turning from where you were to where God calls you to be, you're preparing the way of the Lord. What is he saying? Well, keep in mind that God is, is so good. He wants to fill you. He wants to use you, but he's a gentleman. That if you're already full of you, he's only going to fill that much of him. The more you empty out of you, the more you make room for him, the more he's going to fill. And the problem is, is that so often we don't prepare for the Lord. Um, and, and I find it interesting that when you look to preparing for the Lord, that so often we, we come to a meeting like this and we're rushing, we're rushing, we're rushing. Oh, I made to the meeting. But we're not what? We're not preparing our hearts, praying and seeking to say, God, when I get into this place, make my heart right. There's something about preparation and, and before you come to the Lord. I love the woman who was um, this sinner. She comes into the, the house of the Pharisee and you see her preparation. She had this anointing bottle and she, she went before the Lord and she began to weep and, and the tears were on his feet and she began to wash with the air and she broke this bottle. But she was prepared to worship and say, whatever cost that I have to do to worship you in this place. And it was even a hostile place. It wasn't her place. It wasn't a public place. It was the home of Simon the Pharisee. And so she comes in there, but she still is what she's preparing herself. And this is what John says, prepare. And I think it's important that the more that you prepare before you come into this place, the more that God is going to meet with you and minister to you. If you've ever noticed maybe in the past where, where you didn't prepare, you came and rushed like, oh, God will still speak to you. But, but when you do take that time, and you're preparing the way of the Lord. And he says, making the path right. In other words, if you've got hills and valleys and turns, he says, just, just make it as easy for God to access whatever it is in your life that he needs to have access to. Give him permission. So often what Christians do these days is they, they try to manipulate in their life to say I can I can compromise I can compartmentalize my sin over here or compartmentalize sin over here and they they isolate it and they make it difficult to say where God knows everything but you know God you don't know this is over here and this is over here it's hard to find and this is hard to get at rather than just opening everything up making it as easy for God to have access to our hearts because the greatest thing is this. When you come to a meeting like this, or when you're preparing to come to a meeting like this, your heart should be like John. I must decrease. 
he must increase. What can I empty of me that he can have more of me? And so his whole message is this. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Do what you have to do for God to have the greatest work in you. And so he goes on to say in verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, commentators differ to say that what wild locust is is kind of like a carob bean that comes off of a tree, that he eats that. Um, others believe that it was actually grasshoppers. Um, I, I don't care. Whatever you want to believe. Um, I have no problem. I've been to the Milwaukee Museum. They had crickets and little popsicles. I gave them to my kids. They liked them. They didn't have a problem with them. Um, you know, I was in the Marines, and they said, listen, if you're there, don't wait till you get hungry. Start eating grubs. Start eating stuff. When you're on survival training, you don't mess around. You constantly get as much carb, as much protein as you can. And even if it has little spooky things on its legs, just eat it. Um, so I don't, I don't have a problem believing that it was actually locusts. I don't have a problem believing that he was actually eating bugs. So hopefully when he's preaching his message, he has a good amount of distance between the guys in front of him. And so, but he does have that wild honey, which helps soften that breath thing. So um, you do see John at least have some little bit of, uh, you know, tightness in his preaching. So, but you see here, he's just a rugged guy. And, and it's everything that God is doing to provide for him. He's not looking to say, I need to have this and I need to have this. Everything that God provides. So he has himself this camel's hair. He has a leather belt. And his food is just basically locusts and wild honey. My belief is everything that God provided for him, this is what he eats. Now verse 5 is so unique because he's in the wilderness. And this is where verse 3, he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so here, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. They came to him. He didn't, he didn't look for the thing. He just he was there where God called him to be, and people came to him. Um, this is one of those passages that you don't see in, in how to start a church seminar. You know, you don't see it. It's like that, this is not how we start a church. We do our demographics, we do all these things. John did one thing to start his ministry. He didn't copy other successful ministries. He didn't say, okay, what is the new look that we have to do? John says, you know, I am being led by the Spirit of God so that as I do this ministry, that they don't have anything to look to me. They're not looking to me, that they, they see past me, and they're, they're seeing the, the behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the key to, I believe, is a successful ministry, that, that what you do is you do everything you can to get them to see past you and to get them to put their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's the ministry that every husband should be to his wife, every wife should be to their husband, every parent should be to their child, every friend should be to another friend. There's all these ministries that you have, and the key is this. I want you to yeah, see me, I want you to look to me, I want you to look past me, and I want you to see the Lord. This is one of those things where I warn just almost vehemently in premarital counseling. 
when you have this couple that finds each other and they, they meet each other, and the, the whole thing that I try to warn these, these young women is, is that if the guy is, is saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at what I do, and you know, of course, guys that are in love are like two-year-olds and three-year-olds. Um, we, we had our granddaughters over at, the, um, at our place and we set up the little pool for them. And, and I'll tell you, I heard the word, look at me. Poppy, look at me. No less than three million times, and I'm not exaggerating. Look at me, Poppy, look at me, look at me, look at me. And, and so Poppy, look at me, Nana, look at me, look at me, look at me, just look at me. That's what a young man who's in love does. Look at me. Oh, aren't I amazing? And what happens is that the guy says, look, I want you to see me. And in a sense, when the girl looks to the guy, they're looking at the guy, and the guy's becoming an idol. The key to premarital ministry is this. When the guy is so in love with the Lord, he says, listen, I want you to see past me, and I want you to see my Jesus. This is the key. For the girl to say, I don't want you to look at me. I want you to look past me, and I want you to see my Jesus. And that should never, ever change for as long as you're married. That should be the key ministry that you do. And so I love what John does. And so keep in mind that when it just talks about him being clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt, and, you know, he's, he's not, you know, having all these delicacies of the king, like, you know, Daniel said, I won't eat the delicacies, <laughs> neither did John. He didn't even eat normal stuff, you know, so let alone the delicacies. But I love the heart because you have to see that the key to verse 4 is this, and in verse 5 is that, that he allows people to see through him to see the Lord. And if you have that heart in, in any relation that you have, it's going to be powerful. And this is where we have that opportunity to simply point people to the Lord. But verse 5, all Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region around the, the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan and confessing their sins. At this point, we see here that he goes out and he's baptizing. Now, the, the baptism that he does is not where he takes an infant and he sprinkles a little water and, you know, and, and prays over them. When you baptize, and what John is doing is this, that the people who are, are conscious of a decision that I need to go through this and I need to have this washing, I need to have this cleansing, He's bringing them and he's bringing them and submersing them in water and he's bringing them back out. So in a sense, what they're recognizing is this is a cleansing. And it's in a sense the baptism becomes a spiritual cleansing, but there's going to be a greater work that goes on because eventually what John is going to declare is this, and I want to run you to this in verse 11, where he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he was coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what John is trying to do is this. He has the baptism of repentance. Now when people come, and I want you to see in verse 6, they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins, do not mistake that what he's actually doing is verse 11. He indeed is baptizing them with the water unto repentance. 
Before they go in the water, they're confessing their sins. I've done this, I've done this, I've, my life is in error here. So what he's saying is this, now that area of your life is dead. There's a new area, a new direction that you're going to now live in. And so this is that whole aspect of, of what the baptism is. John's baptism was a precursor to what Jesus Christ does. In the book of Colossians, they, they, Paul says this, we were buried with him in baptism. In other words, that everything that Jesus Christ did physically, we who are in him, as we are baptized now, we're saying not that, you know, this part of me is dead, but all of me is dead. I died with Christ. You go under the water. Then you come and say, now I've been raised with Christ to a brand new life. This is here is what John is doing. So keep in mind that don't just read verse 6 and disqualify the rest of the passage. Yes, what they were doing was confessing their sins, but what he was telling them in verse 11 is that he was baptizing with the water unto repentance. He was saying, yes, you confess, but that's not the end. What my end is, is that you turn and you follow God. And in other words, you decrease, he increases. This is the key. So in John's baptism, we see this beautiful picture of what he's doing as he now baptizes them um, in the Jordan and they're confessing their sins. Now, why is he there by the Jordan? Because there's water there. That's just it. He baptized them because there's water. Hey, here's a good place. There's water. Let's do this. And so um, beautifully, they come through. And I want you to see how so often in that area where it comes to, to the baptism and it comes to the confession. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, I want to read just a couple of verses to you. Acts 19, beginning in verse 4, says this. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. So we see here that, that you know, as, as Paul is teaching, he says, yes, John baptized with this baptism of repentance. And it's important to understand, it's important to recognize, it's important to grasp that. But in verse 18, he makes this statement. And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So one of the precursors of repentance is this. It's actually being specific to what you're going to turn from. The beginning of my Christian walk was, I'll be honest with you, very generic. I would, I would literally say, God, forgive me for my sins. God, forgive me for my sins. God, forgive me for my sins. And I was so generic that nothing ever changed. And I'm like, why is it that I'm confessing my sins? I'm confessing my sins. And then one day, the Spirit just spoke to me and says, what sin? And I, I was taken aback. And it was literally as if, if God himself had voiced in my head and my heart, what sin? And I had to now think. I could no longer be generic. And I was very specific. And I said, okay, God, I know what I did. And I had to think about what it was that I did. When you're generic, God, forgive me for my sins. You can go on and just say, well, I, I confess, I confess. No, that, that, what are you going to turn from then? If you become very, very specific, and I had to admit, God, I was very short with this person, and, and I was in error. 
And so I was able to say, you know what, I'm going to turn from that. Um, in time, God began to say to all of my confession, it will never be generic again. And so my, my confession time is, is when the Spirit speaks something. Um, I don't say, forgive me for all my sins and I'm looking for things to do. But when the Spirit speaks something, I'm very specific. God, forgive me for this. Why? Because I know what I have to turn from. And when I turn from that specific sin, what God does, in, at least in my life, and maybe he does it in your life, Paul does it in his teaching, and I try to do it in my teaching, and I try to do it in my counseling, that when you find the thing that you're in error with, you look to the scripture and you say, this is what the scripture says, and yes, you are in error. But then you look to also what the scripture says and says, turn from this and do this instead. When I started doing this as a parent, my, my whole parenting style changed radically. It used to be just no, don't, don't, no, don't, just don't do this. Never giving them something else to do. Eventually, as God got a hold of my heart, it's like, listen, we can't do this. And here's why. This is what the Bible says. The Bible talks about this. But here's what we can do instead. So it gives you something to say, yes, I can confess and I can turn and I can do something else. I can agree with God. And this is why he says, you know, let him who steals, steal no longer. But let him work with his hands that he's able to give. You understand? God gives you something else to do. And this is what's so important when it comes to this area of confession and repentance. What John does is this. He goes, verse 6, he baptizes, they're baptized by him in the Jordan and confessing their sins. And so as they confess, make no mistake that his mindset, the message, isn't just confess the sins. His message, his mindset is verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming um, after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So... His message is, yes, you do need to confess very specifically, and then you do need to turn from that sin. But in turning from that sin, here's the thing. Agree with God to what you should be doing. Because when you're just saying, I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be, okay, well, great, you should be doing that. We understand that. But what should you be doing instead? Find something to replace it with. Because in your mind, when you say, I shouldn't be doing this, but I can be doing this, it gives you what? Hope. It gives me direction. It gives me an understanding. Now, I may still be like Paul to say, the things that I want to do, I still don't find myself doing. The things that I don't want to do, I do find myself doing. Oh, wretched man, but I do know what I've heard from God. Don't do this. Do this instead. That's what the confession repentance is. So now, when you look to these areas of repentance, and you look to these areas of confession, and the whole thing what John is trying to do is this. He's trying to say, don't be superior with God. Don't, don't elevate yourself. Like this. When you come to God, decrease yourself. As much as you can, decrease yourself. And so we see here that through that, when the Pharisees, verse 7, he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now he sees two groups of people. He sees Pharisees and Sadducees. We're going to learn more about these guys as we continue to go through Matthew. But the Pharisees were those of the religious elites. 
The Sadducees were those who didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the spiritual. So you, you see these two groups, and, and if you're going to quote it, you can, you can define it like this. We're going to define it. The, the, the Pharisees would be the legalist. The Sadducees would be the liberalists. That's, the, that's a good way to put it in your head. When you see the Pharisees, they're legalistic. When someone says you're being pharisaical, in other words, you're looking at all the rules and regulations and, and all these other things that you should be doing. And when you're, um, when you're a Sadducee, you're, you're just free to do everything. You're, just, you're, you're liberal in your theology. So you have both of those who were the legalists um, and you had those who were in the liberal sense, but these are the religious leaders who are coming to the baptism. And as they come to this baptism, he simply comes and says, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Here's the problem with text. Have you ever noticed that in a text, there are a lot of people who say, just give me a text, give me a text, give me a text, but then they're all offended because of how the text was written, <laughs> rather than a voicemail. Because when you read a text, you can put in any intonation you want. When you hear a voicemail, you actually say, oh, he wasn't upset. Like when you take a look at, at there, the beginning of, of the Garden of Eden, when, when God comes and he looks and he says, Adam, where are you? Well, was he, Adam, where are you? Was he this mad guy who's like broken around? Adam, where are you? Is he hurt? Where, you, you can't just take that tonation from a text. And here, is he, is he frustrated? Is he angry? Or is he just really sincere? Brood of vipers. You guys are snakes. And, and, and keep in mind that when he's referring to them as snakes, he's literally, I do believe he's pointing them to the very first prophecy of Satan coming as a serpent. You guys are vipers. You guys are, are like pit vipers. You guys are poisonous. You guys destroy others. And this is what Jesus had such a problem because what these Pharisees had done is they made people and their desire for worship, they would make a profit out of it. That was a huge thing where he would drive them out of the temple. My father's house should be a house of prayer. You've made it the den of thieves. You're trying to mark it where, where God says, come to me, come to me, come to me. And you're putting hurdles and barriers in front of them and you're profiting off it because you're exalting yourself and making yourself increase where you says, this is what you have to obtain to versus we are all horrible. God is going to give you what you need. You don't have to attain to anything. God is the one who does the work. And so he sees them. He simply calls them the brood of vipers. So I don't know if he's saying brood of vipers or he's saying ah, brood of vipers. You know, who warned you? And, and I love the heart of that because it's who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He's letting them know there's a judgment. And if you're here, maybe God brought you here for a reason. And, and, I, and I don't think he's doing it in anger. I think he's doing it in hope. Where he says, if you're here, you're here for a reason. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath that can't to come? If you bear witness, witness to your life, you're going to realize where you've been. I want you now to come to this point of receiving from me. So who warned you to flee from this wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. See, I don't think that last line was there in anger. I think it was there in, in that hope and that, that wanting to be compassionate. It said, listen, bear fruits worthy of repentance. 
If you're a highlighter, just highlight this. If you're an underliner, underline it. If you're not, become one. It's just such a powerful thing because when you bear fruits worthy of repentance, what does it mean? It means that, that, that I'm walking in the direction that God declared for me. In other words, I'm fulfilling His will in my life. And that's what it is. Just bear the fruits that are worthy of repentance. And then he says this. Do not think of your... The, Say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children um, to Abraham from these stones. Now here, take a look at, you know, John is dressed in camel's hair, a leather belt, cats, crickets, feet out of his teeth, you know, all these things that are going on. And yet he's able to proclaim to these guys, he says, listen, what you need to do is, is realize don't think so highly of yourself. You see these stones? God is able to raise up a child from a rock. And, and that means that you are that insignificant. Now be grateful that God has raised you. Be, be grateful that God has called you. But don't elevate yourself to think now I'm all this. Because God can take a rock that's right here and elevate you. So, so the whole thing that what we see is that, that Matthew over and over in his gospel begins to poke holes in people's superiority. I mean, he did it by even saying, listen, Jesus called me a tax collector. He didn't, went, he didn't go to the temple and call a priest. He didn't go there and call a Pharisee. He didn't go there and call a Sadducee. He called a tax collector. What does that say about you guys? You know, so John, is Matt, or what Matthew does is he's poking holes in all these areas of, of superiority. Of course, he does it here as he sees them coming now to the baptism. So why are they coming? Are they coming to check them out? Are they coming to see where their competition is? Are they coming to figure out what are these people doing? And when, when John does this, he just invites them in. Come on in. Come on in. Come on down to the water. Confess your sins and repent. Turn from this wrath that is to come because that's the direction that you guys are going in this religion because you're missing the whole understanding of a relationship. But he says this in verse 10, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. So in other words, I'm doing this symbol of this purity on the physical, on the outward. But he who is coming after me, and understand, he's still saying, I'm a messenger, I'm a messenger, there's one who's coming after me, I'm not the one but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. I, I don't even, I'm not even you know, qualified to be a servant. So you see how humble he is. But he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now there's a big difference of what John is trying to say. He's saying there right now, I'm baptizing you with the symbol of purity. He's actually going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, which is actual purity. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, keep in mind, you don't want to sin. You don't want to. When, when God's Spirit is upon you, you're only like, Lord, what is it about you? What can I do to glorify you? And so this is the heart. Now, keep in mind that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I think that there's a, a problem because too many people want the power of the Holy Spirit, but they don't want the purity that comes with the Holy Spirit. They want the power in the ministry, but they don't want the purity of their ministry. 
There's a, a passage, you guys probably know I'm going there anyways, but in Acts chapter 8, I only read, want to read just a couple of verses. There's a man by the name of Simon who was there with the Samaritans when Philip was there witnessing. But what Simon does is this, in Acts chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, he goes to Peter and he says, Give me this power also that on anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Simon wanted power. He was one that people looked to, that one that people said, oh, he's a mighty power of God. He says, I, you're, they're looking to you. I want this power. I want them to still look at me. And, and Peter says, let your money perish with you. It isn't about getting them to look at you. Like John, get them to look through you and to the Lord. This is the heart. And so we see here this beautiful picture as he goes through and he's trying to make this understanding as far as, this is the key. This is what we should be doing. This is what we should be seeking. So as he comes now, we see that he lets them know in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water, physical, unto repentance, which is after confession. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, shows his humility. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There will be a power in his baptism, and there will be a purity in the, the baptism. So when the, when the Spirit comes upon you, if you're ever wondering, why don't I have power over the sin? Why don't I have power over the sin? And to be honest with you, is you're not giving God enough access into your life. You give God access. To, to, you make the path straight. You prepare him to come in. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, you're no longer going to have a desire for those things. Keep in mind, there are some things where that desire goes instantly. Other times it's the desire that God says, listen, I'm going to leave this in your life for a while because I need you to have this in your life so that you constantly need to cry out to me for victory. And there have been things in my life where instantly God just delivered me. I was in the Marine Corps. And one of the, the nasty habits I picked up was tobacco. And so, um, you know, and I smoked and I smoked until I received Christ. And the, the, the night that I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, I, I, I prayed. I, I walked to the back to talk to this guy who was going to talk to me about the decision that I just made. I reached into my pocket. I grabbed the cigarettes. I threw them into the trash. And I've not had one since. Just, I've not had one. Just as it was gone. There was, but he didn't do that with every sin in my life. You know, some things that he left that it's like, and I'm still, but I rely on God. I rely on his power because these things are still there in my life. There's still something that I struggle with, but it's, it's through his power that there's a victory. It's through his power that all of a sudden these things that were once something that I could take pleasure in, now I see it as putrid. Now I see it as darkness. Now I see it as that debauchery. I see it as sin. And it's just his spirit that does that. Um, you know, therefore the grace of God go I. I could still turn it and say, yeah, this could be pleasure. But not when the spirit's in you. When, when the spirit's in you, you see sin as what it is. It's darkness. It's death. It's like a manure pile. And you're not like, wow, you know, I want to just play in it for a while. You, you just, you don't want any part of it. You, you want the purity. And this is what he says in verse 11. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. 
He will gather his wheat into his barn, and he will burn it to chaff with an unquenchable fire. So what he's talking about here is in this agrarian society, when you would throw up the grain um, that as you would blow, the, the chaff that rubs against the other grains will eventually loosen, and this, this wind will blow the chaff away from the grain. The grain, the meat of the grain will fall to the ground. The chaff, that um, airy stuff that gets stuck in your, your throat, it's just not really a, um, just like a paper thin chaff on the top of the wheat. He says that is nothing. It just gets burned up. So he's separating that which is meaty from that which is on the surface, which is worthless. And he says, and this is what he does. And so I love the heart of it where he says, his winnowing fan. This is the work of Christ. His, his desire is to take the things that are meaty in you and, and to, to make it stay and to anchor it. But the things that are on the surface, the things that are fleshly, the things that are worthless, the things that are chaff, he says, I want to separate it. And I'm going to separate it. Now he says, sometimes it's the whole person. Sometimes it's just aspects of the person. But his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly cleanse out his clean out his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into his barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We know that the things that we do um, in the Lord, he purifies it. The things that we don't do, he burns it. And so verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me? So within his heart we see here um, is are you actually coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so um, for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. So John here is used as a vessel for Jesus to fulfill his ministry. He says, I want you to be a part of me fulfilling my ministry. Now understand, this is what God wants from us. He says, I want to use you for me to fulfill my ministry. What does Paul say? Well, there are some who plant, there are some who water, but God brings the increase. That's the fulfillment of his ministry. So through this in verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. That message will start next week. So just in case you're thinking, how are you going to get all that in? We're not. We're going to stop right here. So, so that's where we're ending, just so that you, you recognize that, that where we are. Um, so the, the fulfillment of where, where Jesus is going to be. So we'll probably back up to verse 13, but we're going to be focusing here on verse 16 as we start next week. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we are so grateful, so thankful for who you are. And you are the God that wants to poke holes in every area that we may feel superior. And we're thankful for that, Lord. Um, that there's nothing that would be in us, nothing that would be to draw people away from you. And we want to be like John. We want to decrease that you may increase. We want to point people to you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and may we be those who, who you know, aren't those that... Um, want to harm, aren't those who frustrated um, like Herod was. Um, but we want to be like the Herald. Um, we want to be like, like John preaching and proclaiming that in you is life. In, in you is, is eternal life. 
and but but in you there, there's a process it's not it's, we come to you just as we are but we're not going to stay as we are um, we're so grateful for that that you will wash us you will sanctify us you will mold us and, and make us into an image that's pleasing to you so do that work as we yield ourselves to you and tomorrow morning help us to prepare ourselves to receive from you and as we come to your word, as we come to this place, teach us, Lord, what it is to prepare us to receive you and your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.